Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I wonder if you've heard a name this morning. I was unfamiliar with it. I looked it up this week. I just kind of remembered this as an illustration from another, excuse me, another sermon. And uh, it was the name of Joseph Son. Joseph Son was a pastor to Romania, grew up in the midst of communist Russia, and somehow stumbled upon Baptist theology. He describes himself as a Baptist, and becoming a Baptist in an uh, Eastern Orthodox state-run church where that's prevalent and predominant, he was ostracized for his faith amongst his friends. He uh, kind of embraced a faith that was largely rejected by those around him. And sure enough, he grows up, and he hears the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's in London. He hears about Westminster. He wants to be trained to be a pastor. And so he gets medical clearance to go to Austria. I think we're having some technical difficulty back there. I promise that's not my voice. I can't do that on my own, right? He gets medical clearance to go to Austria, and then from Austria makes his way over to London. He defects and is trained as a pastor. In fact, he uh, is told that nobody can get into Westminster because unless they're a pastor already, and he makes a special appeal to Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones, he says, he sends word to Lloyd-Jones, and he says, I'm from Romania. I want to go back and preach the gospel to these people. And Lloyd-Jones lets him in. He's trained. He's raised up, and he heads back to Romania. He heads back to a communist country that will reject his message. He says, in a season of prayer, the Lord reminded him of Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, which says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves back here. Um, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep amongst wolves. Does that sound familiar? Seems like our world is getting more aggressive. Does it feel like that? And I don't mean just to raise fear in us this morning. What I mean to highlight is there's a nature of this that has been defining for all of Jesus' disciples since the beginning, that men and women who know God are prone to be rejected by the world, that when we embrace patterns of faith, we actually get disembraced by the world around us. So here's the question for us this morning. How do we process this? How do we process this wolves among sheep or sheep amongst wolves dynamic that God has set us in? If we are to be rejected by the world, what means has God given us to navigate this world and its difficulties? See, when we turn to Acts chapter 4, I think we're in the midst of one of these situations where the world is pressing in at those who are claiming faith. And here's what I think we see in Acts chapter 4. Our prayers can make us bold in the Spirit. 
our prayers can make us bold in the Spirit. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see kind of the boldness of the Apostle Peter in the face of some opposition, and then we're going to see this ignited amongst these early disciples in Jerusalem. We're going to see this in three major phases. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 4, the opposition wants to intimidate God's people. In verses 8 through 22, God's Spirit enables God's people toward boldness. And then verses 23 through 31, which Jody read this morning, God's people can multiply boldness in prayer. I want to start with this first point. The opposition wants to intimidate God's people. Before we dive into Acts chapter 4, let's tell the story of Acts chapter 3. We're not just going to plop ourselves into this passage without any kind of reference of what's been happening. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple, and they discover a man who was born lame. He's been lame for some 40 years since his birth, and he's asking for alms. He's asking for money. Peter turns to him and says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. And immediately, this man is strong enough to walk, and he starts walking and jumping around and praising God in Acts chapter 3. It's kind of a commotion. In all the midst of all this commotion, Peter starts to preach to the crowd, and it's at the end of that sermon that we pick up in Acts chapter 4. Join with me in Acts chapter 4, verse 1 verse through verse 7. And as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? See, what happens is that the Sadducees imprison Peter and John because of their resurrection message. In fact, that's the tension that they have there in verses 1 through 4, is that Peter and John had been preaching about resurrection, and this greatly annoyed these Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. But the damage was already done. In verse 4, we see that uh, 5,000 men and are coming into the faith in this particular instance. Because of the preaching of Peter, this monstrous response is here in Acts chapter 4. And such a dramatic event uh, prompted questions from these religious leaders. The councils, uh, they they provide this high-profile questioning that's going to happen in verses 5 through 7. First, let's just note the heavy hitters that show up at this council, right? The names that are given to us are names we should have heard of before, right? Annas and Caiaphas. These are the last two high priests in Jerusalem. These are both men that Jesus stood before when he was going through his last evening on that Good Friday. See, Annas had previously been the high priest. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, took over. They kept it in the family, as it were. And it seems like the point of bringing them into this is this idea of intimidation, right? That they've put Jesus to death, and now his two disciples are there proclaiming Jesus' resurrection, and they're 
bringing in the heavy hitters that pointed Jesus toward his death. Annas and Caiaphas were those who had sent Jesus to die, and now they're here for his followers too. And now notice the question that they ask in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? I mean, these people love talking about authority. It's happened all throughout our time in John. They're asking about authority. It's happening all through the Gospels. It's happening here in Acts chapter 4. These men love to talk about authority. In fact, this question has been posed to Jesus himself in Matthew 21. When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Jesus as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Notice that it's not just the same people who put Jesus to death. They're asking them the same questions. Let's just do the math here. The same people who crucified Jesus are asking him the same questions, asking Peter and John the same questions that they asked Jesus. And Peter and John have to be doing the math in their heads. They're saying, this is not going well. It's funny how often opposition to the gospel becomes a matter of physicality, suffering. Joseph Zahn, the missionary we talked about, was arrested in the 70s in Romania. He goes back to Romania. He starts to preach the gospel in the open air, and they arrest him. Zahn reported a conversation. It's on the screen for you because I want you to see this. And he, he reports that this interrogator in prison is asking him all of these questions. And look at what he says in return. He says, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here is how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen to it again, what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. So you cannot use physical threats to quiet a spiritual hope. Physical threats hinge upon a false understanding of who we are. The physical threat, the threat against your life, the threat of personal violence denies a resurrected life. Peter and John show up on the scene, and they're talking about resurrection, and these people are talking about hurting them and imprisoning them, and they're saying, what's the matter? Jesus raises the dead. See, they think that we'll do everything we can in our power to preserve our life. It, it traffics these people, they, they, the oppressors, uh, those who would limit the gospel around the world. They traffic in worldly power structures, and they threaten with physical violence. But notice Peter and John's message is about resurrection. And the physicality of suffering finds no quarter in a heart focus on life after death. Whatever threat it promises will only re be rewarded with an eternal heaven. I love this because Zahn goes on and he quotes, he says, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and I said, sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. 
By the way, you might stop and think, this isn't us. This isn't happening in the United States. We're not seeing threats of physical violence, right? We have the Bill of Rights. We have the Constitution. Right now, those opposed to the gospel do not threaten us with physical pain and violence, and you would be right to say that. But the tools of our society are shame and alienation. You ever feel that? If you were to go into the workplace and talk openly with someone else about your faith in Jesus and their need of a Savior, how would that affect your social standing at your workplace? How would it affect the next promotional cycle? Would you get that next level job? Perhaps not. See, the tools of our society now to stop the growth of the gospel are shame and alienation. You won't lose your life, but you may lose your reputation. You might lose your friends. See, taking up our cross in 21st century America right now means willingness to be called a fool. Count the cost. See, I sense that right now the church in America is recalibrating itself. Amidst all of these pressures, how will we handle this new era, this post-2015 era that we're in, where everything seems kind of topsy-turvy and the land is kind of resettling for us? How are we going to handle ourselves? Will we fall into line with our society's tools and weapons, and we're going to sling mud and call names? I want to draw attention to what these disciples do in Acts chapter 4. See, God's Spirit enables God's people toward emboldened gentleness. It's the best way I can phrase it. This emboldened gentleness that's exhibited by these disciples. Look at verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. First, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he starts to speak. And look at what Peter says about this response. They're asking this question about whose name and in whose authority did you perform this? And Peter responds, he says, the miracle was performed in Jesus' name in verse 10. That is, the power to perform this healing came through, through the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not just that that's in Jesus' name. Look what he says next in, in the second half of verse 10, that the powerful name belonged to the man that they crucified. Verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Peter implicates these very authorities for the death of Jesus Christ. We just stop and we consider the irony of what's happening. These authorities show up to intimidate, but now Peter's boldness in the gospel confronts them in their sin. 
The final thing he notes is that this powerful name is the only means of salvation. Verse 12, he says, there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What a statement this is. The person you killed is the only means of salvation. And we could hear that humble gentleness, that emboldened humility that's present here. Peter's not mincing words about what he's saying, but he's still calling them to that salvation. He hasn't written them off, saying that Jesus, whom you crucified, is the one who's here to save right now. Now, this is where the passage gets interesting in verses 13 through 18. The the council starts to recognize their defeat. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, verse 13, and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus by seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healings was performed was more than 40 years old. See, this council, they start to recognize their defeat. They recognize Peter's boldness. They recognize that he's been with Jesus, that he's untrained, ordinary man that has been with Christ. Luke tells us that they're astonished at this. But the nature of the miracle is undeniable in verse 14 and verse 16. And they see this healed man, and they have nothing to say in contradiction. In verse 16, they confer amongst themselves and realize that they can't say or do anything. And so what they turn to is just to silence the witness of these two men. They're worried about the spread of this message of resurrection. They're worried that these disciples will continue to speak in Jesus' name. So what happens is that Peter and John respectfully disobey, verses 18 through 22. The disciples' response is fittingly Godward. Look at verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what God has seen or what we've seen and heard. It's as if to say, we're listening to God, not to you. And our mouths are bound to what God has called us to. Now, notice the subtlety of this contradiction that we have here. These disciples, these two men who have been with Jesus, untrained, ordinary men, bound in their conscience to do what God calls them to do, stand in contrast to these holy men who are tied to what the crowd expects of them. 
The contradiction is between the, God, the disciples' Godward action and the religious leaders' fear of the people. Peter and John are captive to the will of God, but the religious leaders are bound to the will of the people. Look at what verse 21 says. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. These religious leaders are too afraid of people to do the thing that they know they need to do. You know, it's true this morning that persecution highlights spiritual realities. If we go back to the life of Joseph Zahn, he went back to Romania and he preached, and he was consistently threatened with arrest until finally in 1977, he was arrested. And he said this, he said, during that time, during that time, I was expecting to be crushed by the Romanian secret police uh, interrogators. But God became more real to me than ever before or after in my life. It's difficult to put into words the experience I had with God at that time. It was like a rapture into a sweet and total communion with the beloved. God's test for me then became the pathway to a special knowledge of the reality of God. See, physical threats only embolden our spiritual life. Biblically speaking, this plays out all the time. Think about the passages in the Old Testament, like Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Paul's in prison in Philippians chapter one, and he says this, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way, I'm blessed he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that he's constantly being given over to death for Jesus' sake. See, in the economy of faith, our, our, our life of faith kind of insulates us from the physicality of our death. See, death is the proving grounds for our faith. In the face, face of death, our true allegiance is made clear. So what happens here in Acts chapter 4 is we've seen tension and resolution. We've seen a miracle performed. We've seen kind of the rising action of this obstinance from these spiritual authorities in Acts chapter 4, and it's kind of settled back down. And so we might think that the passage is closed, that Luke has kind of given us his point. Uh, the church has prevailed in this particular instance, and God is going about what he said about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But I think Luke has another point in this passage, because he invites us into the prayer room of these disciples. He invites us to consider the public prayer meeting that takes place after they're let go. In verses 23 through 31, we get a window into how this church prayed, how they understood prayer, what they were after in verses 23 through 31. Let's read together. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak with the word, your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathering together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. See, the disciples report what happened in verses 23 through 24, and they start to pray. We just want to stop and just consider the nature of this prayer. He starts off and he says, Sovereign Lord, verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, they start first with this recognition of God as a sovereign, as someone who rules over them, who lords over them like a king or a president would rule over us, right? See, just like Jesus' exemplary prayer last week in Matthew chapter 6 started out with this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are holy, Lord. The disciples start here with this title, Sovereign Lord. And they give an example of his sovereignty who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. But we just stop and consider just for a second the context in which that statement stated. Peter and John's recent events show a sovereign God who controlled everything. It's like they're processing what just happened in real time in prayer. And notice what they're, they're saying, or what, what we could say from this passage. Only God, the sovereign God, could heal this lame man in Jesus' name. Only the sovereign God could put those men, Annas and Caiaphas, in this room. Only the sovereign gods could so embolden Peter to speak such words. Only the sovereign God could cause the reaction of the people to, cause, uh, to be the cause of Peter and John's preservation. See, Acts 3 and 4 oozes a theology of sovereignty. But it's after this that they get even more historical. They go through this review of God's sovereign plan for opposition. In verse 25, they quote from Psalm 2, and it kind of becomes a paradigm by which we would understand all of the events that they're going to name after. Like they, they, they say this, they say, why did the Gentiles why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, this becomes a kind of format by which we would understand all of the things that are said subsequently. Verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. See, the Gentiles rage in opposition to the sovereign God, and this brush paints all these events, all the opposition that was in Jerusalem, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and Israelites, all of these stood in opposition to God's anointed son, his anointed king, Jesus. But also, this was a part of God's plan. Look what he says in verse 28, or what they say in verse 28. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Translation, this sovereign God moved these chess pieces on the board into exactly the place that he wanted them to be. Isn't this a recipe for boldness in this prayer? If you're struggling to be bold in your faith, be bold with your neighbors, be bold in your workplace, this is a recipe for us to follow, right? We start with a sovereign creator in verse 24. We add in a little scriptural quotation from Psalm chapter 2 in verses 25 and 26, and then we mix in an example of his predestined purpose to fruition, Right, This example in verses 27 to 28, how all of these pieces came together, and voila, what we have is boldness in the disciples. But look at what they request more of. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Request is twofold. First, in verse 29, it's let us speak with boldness. Let's continue down this path. Let's continue to speak the truth of your gospel. Remember that boldness is what this council marked they saw in Peter in verse 13. But the second request is that they would perform message-confirming miracles. I don't want to get into a whole theology of what's happening here, but just know that book Acts is a book of transition, and, and not everything we see here is necessarily for us today. But I don't want to dig in too far into that principle. I just want to say that these disciples are asking for God to confirm their message through miraculous things. See, what stands out in this prayer, is a deep correlation between the heart of God and the heart of his people. God's people pray for what he wants to accomplish. There is an alignment between heaven and earth. And in case there was any wonder, God gives a confirmation. Verse 31, first confirmation comes from this earthquake the whole place is shaked, shaken, right? When they were had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God. So the first thing that happens is this place shakes. And by the way, Acts 16 is going to record this happens again. Paul and Silas are arrested in Philippi, and they're stuck in prison, and they're singing hymns and praying to God throughout the evening. And finally, it's like the whole place just starts shaking, and the doors come off of their cell, and they're free to go. God is confirming the nature and state of these prayers through a physical manifestation. But that's not the only confirmation that we see here in verse 31. The more important confirmation is what we see later on, verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, there's a theology here behind being filled with the Spirit. Anyone who's in Christ has the fullness of the Spirit. He's a seal guaranteeing our inheritance. He doesn't go away. We might be more or less submitted to Him. But what he's saying here is that in that moment, as all of God's people are praying the will of God, the Spirit is fully in harmony with His people. And the confirmation that comes is that all of them are emboldened, just like they had asked 
the confirmation that their prayer was right was that God answered it in the affirmative. So you remember, Peter was filled with the Spirit in verse 8, and he spoke with boldness in verse 13. Now these people are filled with the Spirit, and now they will speak with boldness. What happens with Peter is multiplied in God's people as God's people submit themselves to sovereign God in prayer. And we should light up with this. As a church, we should wrap our arms around this and say, let's gather together under God's purpose and say, let's be bold together in Christ. We have the power of resurrection. We have the fullness of the Spirit. We have the confirmed words of God. Let's lock our arms together and go out with boldness, right? Does this fire anyone else up? See, here, as a result of their prayer for boldness, all are filled with the Spirit. All speak boldly. See, as we step away from this text, I think the thing that impresses upon our hearts is that the Spirit brings an awareness of resurrection for boldness. The Holy Spirit brings this awareness of resurrection for the sake of boldness. Isn't that what Jesus told us would happen? John 14 through 16, he said, I'm sending my spirit. And he's going to give you words to say. Notice the themes of this passage, right? We have this theme of resurrection. And we have this theme of, 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 of the filling of the spirit. And we have this theme of the, whole, of the boldness of Peter and these disciples. This theme of resurrection shows up in, in John and Peter's message in verse 2. They had been preaching this message of resurrection. It's the means of salvation in verses 10 through 12. Resurrection is the, the, uh, it's the name of Jesus, the resurrected one, which holds power for, for salvation in verse 12. It's not just that theme. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, Peter's filled with Spirit. Verse 31, the people are all filled with the Spirit. It's this message of boldness in verses 8 and 29 and 32. See, here's the truth. Our boldness falters without the promise of resurrection. We don't have resurrection in our back pocket as Christians. Faith that Jesus will raise us up at the last day then all of the physical threats are valid. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we have all men are to be pitied if there's no resurrection. Resurrection should embolden you, Christian. It should seep into your bones. It should make you rise up with, with faith, with boldness, and, and say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do today. I want to submit to your will. I want to be brought in presence to your prayer or in prayer to your presence and be conformed to the image of your son so that I might be bold about this message of the gospel. See, as the Spirit makes us more aware of Jesus' resurrection, we should grow in boldness. The story of Jesus' indestructible life serves us as a template that when Jesus was put into a grave, when he laid there for three days, God powerfully resurrected him through the power of his spirit that is now within us. 
And so no matter what the threat against us might be, we also have the promise of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus goes into the grave and comes out alive, I can have confidence that I could go into the grave and come out alive. The promise of the gospel is that our life is indestructible in the life of Jesus. Even after death, we also continue into eternity. There's no threat against you. They might take your respectability your reputation. You might lose friends for the sake of the gospel, but you'll be raised up at the last day. Is it worth it? See, here's the truth. If we desire boldness in the gospel, we should pray. If we desire boldness in the gospel, we should pray. I say that as one who stands in front of you who struggles to be bold. I haven't arrived. I might scream words at you here this morning. I say that as one who also needs boldness. Paul prayed for boldness. He asked for the Ephesians to pray for boldness for him in Ephesians chapter 6. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle. You, you know that friend, you've been praying for them. You've been thinking about them. You want to share with them. But when the moment comes, it's like you freeze. You ever experienced that? Maybe prayer might be a good discipline. Let's talk about how to pray. How to pray in for boldness so that we might be witnesses. First, we want to acknowledge who God is. You know, I've noticed this even this morning. I, I come in early and I start by praying. And the very first thing that rolls off of my tongue, as it were, is this, Lord, help me with this. Give me that. Bless me with this thing. This morning it was, Lord, help this sermon. And immediately I'm in the wrong frame of mind. Gimme, 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 gimme. Notice that these disciples' prayer starts with the words, Sovereign Lord, a recognition of who God is. It sets the course for the entire prayer, and more importantly, it frames their request in an understanding of God and His purpose in the world. Remember, we saw this last week, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. There is a submission to this sovereign, righteous, holy God that frames our prayer. Let's start there. Second thing, acknowledge your need. You know, it's funny that these disciples who just stood up to the religious authorities in Jerusalem, who just stood up to those people who put their Savior to death, ask for boldness. Isn't that what they just did? In our minds, it feels like the one thing that they're responsible to do. You should do that. That's, that's well out of the sovereignty sphere, Peter and John. This is your responsibility here. You're responsible to be bold. Don't you know how this thing works? 
American Christianity, we love to put more responsibility on our plates and kind of deny God's responsibility or God's power, I should say. Paul has this weird statement in Philippians 2. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he says, knowing it's God who works in you. That even in the midst of your work and your effort, you need God to work in you. You can't do it on your own. These disciples come, they say, we need to be bold, but we can't do it by ourselves. See, even our responsibilities require the presence of the Spirit and a resurrected life. They, they need to be brought to God in prayer. We can't do the things God requires without His presence with us. So we pray. So first encouragement, acknowledge who God is. Second encouragement, acknowledge who you are. And finally, take note of the results. Take note of what God does when you pray. Record your progress in prayer. Make note of the faithfulness of God in your midst. Notice that these disciples, they pray, and someone is making note that all of them were filled with the Spirit and with boldness. They're noting God's faithfulness to them in their prayer. I wonder if you might have a pattern in prayer where you write down specific things you pray for, you keep a journal, as it were, and you recognize the faithfulness of God as he brings answers to those prayers. And, and we don't want to be flippant about that and say, oh, well, that thing just happened, you know, God helped me pass the test, or God helped me get the promotion at work, or he did this thing. And we stop and we say, Lord, you are so gracious, so good, so kind to hear me. I thank you that I know you hear me. And I can come to you with my deepest concerns. Let's be a church that has that kind of boldness in prayer. Let's be those who lift one another up, who, who pray for boldness of friends while they're in the workplace, that, that the glory and honor of Christ so pervades our hearts and minds that we wouldn't be able to help but speak of it. Let's be those who go out with the fullness of, of God's work in the gospel that we have a boldness about our message in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray for that very thing. Make us bold with your message. Hide the patterns of fear. Uh, subsume them in grace and mercy. Allow us to know you so that we might be bold. Lord, you promise us a resurrection. You filled us with your spirit. So send us out in your power. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.